David Arquette, the world. I'm going to say it again because I don't believe it. David Arquette is the world champion. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective. Play. We ain't here to play. Hold one. Andre. Who are you to, to, to doubt El Dandy? Because this guy's a serious professional. I will take your mother home and make a woman out of her, kid. You keep your mouth shut. I'm talking to you, kid. I'm going to make your mother go, woo, woo, woo. Hold two. Armbar. What is he oh doing? Oh, my God. Is he the third man? He's the third man. What oh. the hell is going on here? Hulk Hogan has betrayed WCW. That's why I made this match with Judy Bagwell on a pole match. Hold three. The moss-covered, three-handled family grenunzel. Well, I don't know why you don't want to cut my hair, Eddie. You won! This place only up when he picks him up. He's got him up! Oh, yeah! One, two, three! It's like a stun gun! From time to time, I'm going to pop in when you least expect it. Welcome everyone, Joel Brown, your host here, sometimes going by the name Rodney Dion. It is Wrestling Source Bottle, WCW Gold Edition, as we are talking all things WCW in the debut episode of Monday Night Nitro on the TNT Network. The first one ever, 25 years, the 25th anniversary, it's been that long, and here to help me discuss it and more, he is a journalist and he is a 90s wrestling enthusiast. You can find him at Adam Masters. It's the one and only Adam Masters. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, good brother. It's been too long. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Absolutely. And uh, I just said off air that uh, I uh, just recently just finished watching uh, WCW Monday Night Nitro, September 4, the debut episode. Uh, I mean, uh, you also uh, were uh, just finishing watching it. And we were talking about how the 45 minutes slash hour uh, episode of wrestling, it was quite refreshing. Yeah, look, it absolutely was. I mean, I, I struggle to get through a three-hour edition of Monday Night Raw these days. So to be able to revert back to a program, I think I actually said to you, you know, I, I was expecting, I forgot that it was only a 45-minute program without the ad break. So I set aside two hours to, to try and sink my teeth into this program. But to only have a 45-minute program was super refreshing and I was actually amazed by the pace of this program. It really feels like you're actually kind of getting somewhere with the story, which... Um, you know, it's probably testament to uh, where we are these days compared to uh, the wrestling of, of yesteryear or 25 years ago now. It is. It does seem at times uh, that watching a full episode of Raw or even, I guess, when WCW went to three hours, I think it was in 98 or 99, I mean, very taxing, man. Sometimes almost just throwing stuff against the wall and see what sticks in regards to just trying to get content out on the screen. But, uh, um, oh, yeah, I, I agree. I think the 45 minutes an hour sort of formula, I don't think it's something that they'll ever revert back to, but it's definitely not a bad idea. Or are wrestling fans too accustomed to two to three hours? Could you never go back to a maybe an hour or an hour and a half? Look, I think you could. Um, you know, I think even a two-hour program that is well-paced 
with interesting content um, would be acceptable for wrestling fans. But the large majority of people that I speak to, and when you jump online and you review or you see the feedback of people, uh, wrestling fans that are posting on social media, they just say the three-hour format is just too taxing, it's too tiring. And, I mean, I'm, I've always been a strong believer of quality over quantity. You know, we don't need to just have long-winded promos just for the sake of it. Now, I know... Uh, in this day and age, that means ad revenue for, mm. for the WWE. And I know that they get a lot of money out of that. But, you know, is it really worth it at the expense of the quality of your product? Because you're not necessarily keeping some of those fans and their interests and then, you know, obviously not buying, having the ticket sales and the merchandise sales quite like you used to. So I get that it's a delicate game. But, you know, I do think there is merit in maybe reverting back to one of those shorter format programs. Well, let's look back and see what got us to the dance here with uh, WCW's debut episode. I think uh, it was obviously a few months before uh, September. Eric Bischoff uh, is at Turner headquarters or I think the North Tower. I'm just trying to think where he would have had this uh, mm. meeting mm. with uh, Big Ted, uh, Ted Turner. Uh, basically for some licensing deals, you know, just, you know, I guess trying to expand uh, WCW's reach. I think it was out to... Uh, a Japanese or a, a Chinese brand of some sorts. Uh, no TV yeah. on Eric Bischoff's mind at all. But I think Ted Turner laid the line on him, says, you know, what do we have to do to compete with Vince? And Eric Bischoff, as he states, sort of just thinking on his feet, said, give me prime time because uh, back uh, before Nitro, they basically had Saturday night, which was their, uh, their main program, I guess, for storylines and just for any sort of content. And honestly, mm. I mean, I can only imagine here in Australia, uh, I was talking about Rove Live, or not Rove Live, but Rove's uh, Saturday night show getting uh, pulled, uh, pulled, I think, only after a couple episodes, you know, because everyone uh, is watching TV on a Saturday night. They're not going out uh, or doing things. Uh, obviously, pre-COVID, uh, of course, but um, <laughs> Eric Bischoff says, give me prime time. And I guess, as they say, the rest is history. I can even hear that Eric Bischoff impersonation of Ted Turner. I think he, he did it in around a 2003 documentary of the Monday Night Wars. He's oh, give Eric a couple hours on Monday nights, you know. And, and that, as you say, that was it. That was history. And you can just see billionaire Ted doing it in, in your mind as, as you hear those words. Um, truly laid the foundation for uh, a history, uh, a history-making moment in wrestling in a few years of some of the best wrestling content um, that we saw. And I was lucky enough to uh, interview uh, Eric Bischoff a couple of years ago when he did his 83 weeks tour uh, around Australia. Funny enough, where we actually did meet uh, Adam. Uh, but when talking to uh, Eric, uh, he sort of uh, reinforces that Saturday night kind of being a real dead kind of, uh, I guess, dead in regards to ratings and, I guess, uh, getting eyeballs around on content. And obviously the inclusion of Hulk Hogan. You know, I brought Hulk Hogan in around 1994. Uh, we didn't know... We, I would have never imagined that Ted Turner would have asked me to produce a show in prime time to go head-to-head with, with Monday Night Raw and the WWE. So I, I knew bringing Hulk in would improve WCW's business. I knew that it would improve our profile amongst wrestling fans and, and within the industry, within the business of the wrestling business. But we were so... Uh, we were a distant number two, a very, very, very distant number two. And I, I, I wasn't, I didn't convince myself that bringing Hulk Hogan in by himself was going to change that. And I wasn't trying to change that. I was trying to improve our position mm. in the market, but I certainly didn't have any aspirations of, of becoming number one. It wasn't until Nitro happened a year, a year and a half later, that I thought to myself, well, maybe there's a possibility. 
because now we were on a level playing field. Prior to Nitro, you know, WCW was on a Saturday night at 6 p.m., which is a horrible time in tel- for television in the United States. Nobody's watching television on a Saturday afternoon. And, and WWF at the time was in prime time, you know, 8 o'clock on a Monday night. And there was no way we could possibly be, be competitive in that scenario. But when Nitro came along and we were head-to-head, that's when it first occurred to me that even when we first started, I knew it was a very remote possibility we could possibly catch up and be competitive, but I knew that there was one. And and as time went on, we became more and more and more successful, and about six or eight months after we launched Nitro, that's when I started really thinking, okay, now there's actually a chance we can become number one, and eventually we did. So obviously Saturday night dead, um, not the best place to uh, have a TV program. Whether I think anywhere, anywhere around the country, really. But obviously you you did the great uh, Ted Turner impersonation there. Give Eric a couple hours on a Monday, and I guess that leads. Uh, I mean to September four, the uh, debut episode. But I mean, seems to be a lot happening in the the background. Obviously the show mostly known for uh, Lex Luger jumping ship from the WWF to now WCW. Obviously you know. Uh, talking about the contracts, uh, trying to, I guess, see if he was still under contract with WWF or, you know, Sting was really a good friend with, with Lex and trying to convince Eric. And I think Eric kind of lowballed him to begin with and he took it funny enough. But the Lex Luger aside, which we'll definitely uh, get into, I think with the, when they were moving uh, forward with this uh, program, they were actually going unopposed to Raw, which was preempted, I think, by the US Open at the time. So, Coincidence or not, Monday Night Show basically had the wrestling market to itself. Yeah, no, look, that that is the case, and I look, I think it, it is funny, and we, we can dive into this a little bit later. But I, I did notice looking at the ratings that, um, you know, there was some fear initially that putting WCW Nitro up against Monday Night Raw would see the fan base split and perhaps both audiences, uh, you know, maybe not necessarily achieving as high an audience figure as they would like to. And, and the ratings did seem pretty consistent for the, the first few months there. But as you would know, and as all of our listeners would know, if they've been following uh, since the 90s or earlier, um, WCW really ran away with things in the year that follows. But those early few months, um, you know, the wrestling fan base did find its, uh, its its interest in either Nitro or Raw, and some probably shared between the two. But, um, you know, it was definitely a time that didn't see either, uh, either product hurt by the introduction of Nitro, but um, that wasn't to last forever. That was going to change in time. I think it was about a 2.9, I think, this initial uh, episode. And, I mean... Uh, it would be, I mean, WWE, WWF at the time was still, I guess, winning that uh, the ratings early on. It wouldn't be until about 96 until uh, WCW would really go full steam ahead with the NWO angle and basically, I think, have that run of 83 weeks or whatever it was. And, I mean, ratings, I mean, in Australia, I think the ratings are kind of lost on lost on us. It's a big deal, obviously, in America with advertisers and that. And I, and I sort of bring in AEW and NXT. I think they're kind of bringing in, what is it, like 700,000, 800,000 or uh, respectively, mm-hmm. I think. So, I mean, I mean, you know, like there's no – sure, I mean, AEW, you would say, has had more uh, more viewers. But, I mean, they're pretty consistent and the same. I mean, back in the 
uh, it was like the other 90s, especially at the heart of the Monday Night Wars, you had like almost like 9 million viewers, if not more, for um, I think like WWF or WCW at the time. So, and a lot of people would mm. sort of uh, say, oh, well, you know, that's those numbers aren't exactly accurate because it could be the same person channel surfing. But even then, I think you look at the cultural impact. And I mean, when the WWF was at its peak and you had those massive ratings that you saw uh, at their height in 1999, um, you know, the NFL on Monday nights was worried about the World Wrestling Federation and, and what wrestling was generally doing to audiences. I mean, the mm. WWF was proving really strong a, a competition and, and, and topping Monday night football at this time. It's, it's astounding to think. And we look at ratings these days and, and from probably around about 2005 onwards, you know, you would hear, um, you know, how wrestling was rating and, and how uh, wrestling would have to and the WWE would have to prepare for a dip in its ratings because of Monday Night Football. But back then, you were looking at, you know, other sports, mainstream sports, being concerned about the impact of wrestling. It's truly remarkable to think about um, the impact that wrestling had on the on the general television landscape back then. Absolutely. And if you're going to have a debut episode, uh, where would you have it? None other than the Mall of America in Minnesota. Probably, I mean, in hindsight, probably the best uh, case uh, scenario for WCW at this time because uh, they basically had to paper the house, uh, quote-unquote, uh, inside business term there. They, they were paper houses, <laughs> essentially. Basically, they couldn't give tickets away at times. They had to give it away to drunks or people just to fill it up and turn the lights down, I guess. But at a Mall of America, I mean, there's people in there, uh, regardless, doing their shopping or whatever. So it definitely gave that look that it was a packed house. It, it absolutely did. And it was a really smart move by Eric Bischoff to do this, I think, because, number one, it also distinguished... Um, the Nitro product from Raw, you know what I mean? Raw was was running uh, arenas at the time and they were, they were, you know, attracting a healthy enough audience for their TV program. But Nitro and Eric Bischoff has said this multiple times, he wanted the show to look and feel instantly different from Monday Night Raw. And that was both in the way that it, it targeted its audience. He wanted a different demographic. He wanted a different style of wrestler. He wanted a different presentation. And playing into that presentation was to immediately have a different looking product. And on face value, doing this at the Mall of America in Minneapolis, Minnesota, was a stroke of genius for Bischoff. It also did one other thing, which I noticed was when you had uh, the typical baby faces like Hulk Hogan come out, the audience was a general crowd. They didn't necessarily have to be wrestling fans, but they would recognize faces like Hulk Hogan. So he would come out to a massive pop when, let's be honest, you know, at this time, the general wrestling fan probably was wearing a little thin on the, the real American style Hulk Hogan, which, you know, as we know, wound up... Uh, seeing him turn into the, you know, one of the hottest periods in his career when he eventually turned heel, but that's another story. I've got a whole side note on that when we get to uh, Hulk Hogan and the uh, Big Bubba match a little bit later on. But you talk about new feel, feeling different, and Eric Bischoff basically took it upon himself to be, uh, I guess, the play-by-play announcer, for at least for the first few uh, episodes of Monday Night Nitro. We had Eric Bischoff, uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and Mongo Steve McMichael, the uh, former NFL player. And I have to mm. say, um, some people probably at the time didn't appreciate this trio, but I actually thought it was quite great. I, I, I didn't mind it, you know, and Mongo, Mongo I think, has, has copped some unfair flack, um, you know, over the years. I actually thought he integrated quite nicely, and obviously with his, his name recognition in the sports world, I thought, you know, obviously he'd had some ties with wrestling before, but, you know, his, his, his time in WCW was really starting to ramp up here, and this was his, you know, his time to make a mark, um, you know, with, with a new brand, no pun intended with making a mark there. Um, <laughs> 
But, you know, I thought, you know, the brain coming in, uh, you know, and, and, and having his role in Nitro, Bischoff doing his part for these first few weeks, I thought it was an interesting experiment and, and one that wasn't nearly as bad as I think some people tend to think it is. I really did love the uh, exchanges between uh, Mongo and uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan, uh, basically throughout the whole telecast there, uh, taking shots at, each other, shots at each other. And, I mean, Bobby the Brain Heenan, probably one of the best sort of uh, commentators or... Uh, I guess you could say colour commentators of all time. Uh, and But Mongo uh, did all right. I don't know if anyone was right in lines for him or maybe Bobby was right in lines for him or, but they sort of uh, exchanged some uh, good, uh, good one-liners at each other. I think when you're surrounded by people, talk is the quality of Bobby the Brain Heen and whether the lines were, were fed to him in any capacity beforehand, you'd have to imagine there was some preparation. But I think when you're surrounded by people like Bobby, um, you know, you're going to absorb, you're going to be a bit of a sponge and you're going to start to learn from him. And, um, you know, I don't think there could have been any better environment for, for Mongo to really start um, down this path and the, the one that we saw uh, on, on Monday Nitro, the debut episode, because, uh, you know, let's be honest, I, I consider Bobby, you know, among probably the top two or three talkers in my books um, in wrestling. And so uh, to have that sort of set up on Nitro, uh, it caught my attention. And, um, you know, going back and watching the uh, debut episode of Monday Nitro, uh, it reminded me just how great that um, that setup was for that first episode. So, um, you know, for Eric Bischoff, I think he did pretty good with the arrangement here. It would be remiss of me uh, not to mention the, obviously, the theme and the intro for WCW Nitro, the dun, 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 uh, bad rendition there, but uh, uh, pyro and sort of like the buildings, where you can sort of see um, some wrestling action sort of faded into the buildings. Uh, great stuff, uh, especially for the 1995, the 90s, but uh, that music, so iconic. Absolutely iconic, and I have to be honest with you, I think it was 1999 when they changed to the new WCW mm. Nitro theme. Yeah. I was a little bit despondent, I have to admit, I was very much on the Raw as War bandwagon by that point, but, um, you know, I always have a soft spot for that original Nitro music, and that, and that intro's title sequence is fantastic, and I thought it was quite technologically advanced for its time, you know what I mean? A lot of the graphics and a lot of the, the, the visualizations, even during this episode of Monday Nitro, some of the promos for the pay-per-views that were coming up looked a little bit basic but that nitro intro really set the theme and the tone for what nitro was going to be which was unpredictable explosive in your face action and uh, i thought it was a stroke of genius from the get-go they did actually have a dark match uh, for monday nitro obviously they didn't make the telecast it was uh, the american males uh, taking on bunkhouse buck and dick slater and a bit of a side note uh, wcw main event the previous night it was uh, alexander bagwell obviously buff is the stuff buff bagwell took on brian pillman in a match and that winner would go on to face jujan thunder liger uh, in the opening match here on nitro how different would have Nacho been if they kicked it off with Buff Bagwell and uh, Jujan Thunderliger? Yeah, well, you know, I, th I wouldn't want to ask JR what he would think of that because we all know what JR's opinion of Buff the stuff, get your mum to call in sick for you, Bagwell. But, um, you know, <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly, yeah, I should preface that. Um, uh, but yeah, look, look, it would have definitely been different. Um, I have to admit, I'm quite happy with the arrangement that we wound up going with. But, um, you know, hey, maybe I'm being a bit tough on uh, Buff the Stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I think history played out for the best in that regard. Absolutely. So we do kick it off with uh, Flying Brian at the time, Brian Pillman uh, taking on Liger. And I guess this is the uh, adolescence sort of what would eventually be the cruiserweight division, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And you could instantly see from the get-go that Bischoff was trying to position 
WCW and Nitro as an alternative product to the WWE. I mean, you know, the, the World Wrestling Federation at its at that time was the land of where, you know, where the big boys were and not where the big boys play, but it was the land of the giants, I suppose you could say. Um, and so to have some uh, some of the smaller guys featured like this was, was a really nice touch. And, you know, obviously Peelman has his uh, WWF ties, but this was a really nice uh, way to go about things. Um, you know, I, 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 the match itself I thought was okay. There were a few botched moments in between there. I don't know if it was nerves. I don't know if it was maybe the, you know, the, the atmosphere of the, the big stage. This was something special. Um, but, you know, it was quite good. It, it wasn't, um, you know, I, I would encourage our listeners to go back to 1992 and watch the Super Brawl 2 match mm. between the two of them. It was a 17-minute encounter, which I think is is a better showcase of what they have to offer with each other. But, you know, it was a nice way to start the, uh, the broadcast. And, um, you know, I, I think a, a good indicator of what WCW and Nitro had to offer moving forward. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned where the big boys play. I'm pretty sure that was essentially where the tagline was started and created was this debut episode of Monday Nitro, where the big boys play. Look at the adjective. <laughs> Look at the adjective. You know, I have to say, in the crowd, there is a, um, we were mentioning how this was a, a general, like a mall audience. In the crowd, there is a, a, a slightly older gentleman. And if anyone is going back and watching the episode, keep an eye out for it. Um, facing the hard camera is a bloke who holds up a sign that says WCW, where the big boys play. And I'm thinking to myself, that has to be a plant, right? Mm-hmm. That is surely somebody WCW has put in the crowd there just to really ramp home that message. Because I don't see many people turning up with, uh, the corporate branding like that to the very first episode and finding themselves perfectly in line of the uh, the hard camera. But maybe that's the cynic in me. I don't know. So Pillman gets the win over Liger for the first match, uh, one of three on this debut episode of uh, Monday Nitro. And then we go to a Sting promo, a uh, classic Sting promo here, uh, ramping up his match, the next match with uh, the nature boy, Ric Flair. But uh, definitely a highlight for many wrestling fans is uh, the, uh, I guess, the, the vignette or the, the recording of uh, Eric Bischoff uh, talking to one Hulk Hogan at Pastamania. Now, a lot of uh, critics of Hulk Hogan have basically said this whole episode was basically just to promote uh, Pastamania, which I think died and went bankrupt uh, within a year or so, like most small businesses uh, tend to. If you can survive the first 12 months and you go, all right, Pastamania, um, I made a little bit of a tweet saying, what are you going to do when Pastamania goes bankrupt on you? But uh, we got a little bit of this promo, uh, Adam, uh, of uh, Hulk Hogan talking up his You know something, Eric Bischoff? Tonight on Monday Nitro, Pasta Mania has got all my Hulkamaniacs running wild. And I've eaten so many Hulkaroos and Hulkyus, I kind of feel sorry for Big Bubba, brother, because tonight, brother, first time on TNT, I'm putting the WCW heavyweight title on the line. And with Pasta Mania running through my brain, who's going to beat Big Bubba tonight, Hulkamaniacs? And when I'm done dragging him around the Mall of America and all my pasta maniacs are tearing their WCW shirts off, brother, I'm going to give Big Bubba a dose of my Hulkaroos up there and then I'm going to body slam him again. You know, with little Hulkamaniacs like that, pasta maniacs all around the Mall of America, Big Bubba, you better tighten up that waistline, brother, because the Hulkster's slim and trim. I've been eating my pasta mania, and what you gonna do in the Mall of America, brother, when Hulk Hogan, pasta mania, and all my pasta maniacs run wild on you? What's he gonna do? All right. So, Adam, what are you gonna do when pasta mania is running through your veins? 
Oh, look, I don't know if I have any room for it after taking all my vitamins and saying my <laughs> prayers. But, um, you know, look, this was an interesting concept. Um, you know, this was classic Hulk Hogan at the time. And I, and I do look back on it. And while I cringe, I, I do, I am feeling a sense of, you know, strange nostalgia. Because like I said, this is quintessential Hulk Hogan. I love Eric trying to, you know, push his way through these kids to try and get a word in with Hogan so he can deliver his sound bites and try and promote, you know, the, the, the match against Big Bubba. Um, you know, am I disappointed that Pastor Mania went out of business? No, not really. Um, I did see somewhere that um, apparently the awning for uh, Pastor Mania was, was nicked and was is now being installed somewhere and is kind of a, a sort of a shrine of sorts for, you know, wrestling fans who, who care. That's great. Um, you know, my understanding is that uh, the Pastor Mania site went on to be a McDonald's. So I don't know which was the more nutritious option, but uh, glad to see that the site lives on uh, in corporate infamy now. <laughs> Pastor Mania, I, I, I maybe it might stand a better time in uh, 2020 Pastor Mania. What do you reckon, Adam? Well, look, you know what? I'm still waiting for my CM Punk ice cream bars, but mm. I'm not going to turn down a Hulk Hogan Pastor Mania, you know, uh, Hulkaroo, I think it was called. You know what I mean? I'm I'm totally down with wrestling-themed meals, you know what I mean? Let's bring them on, make sure they're nutritious. Um, you know, maybe we can retail it with some IcoPro on the side. I don't know, but it sounds like a great deal to me. <laughs> All right, then we move to Sting v. Ric Flair. Now, how's this for history or, I guess... Uh, Weirdness. I'm trying to think of a word, but it uh, eludes me. But Sting v. Ric Flair, they face each other on the debut episode of Monday Nitro and, funny enough, face each other in the main event of the last ever Monday Night Nitro in 2001 when then purchased by WWE. Yeah, this was really a great example of, of wrestling and wrestling history coming full circle, you know, having the nature boy who was in tremendous condition here, you know, and, and very much over, like Stinger, you know, two great talents, um, really in, in peak fitness here. Um, the match itself wasn't really anything too great, you know, it was neither here nor there. Of course, we all remember this for the debut of a major talent, and this was, you know, the first big debut coming over from up north, as they say. Mm. Fantastic uh, moment, and and I, I still hear, you know, I still hear the sound bites. You know, what's he doing here? As uh, as Lex Luger made his way down the uh, the makeshift entrance way there in the uh, in the mall. Truly historic stuff. And I'm, I'm glad that you know this actually played into Eric Bischoff's philosophy. You know, he yep. wanted big name talents. You know, going one on one on on cable television. This wasn't, you know, this moment wasn't safe for pay per view. This was for the debut episode of Nitro. Um, truly historic stuff right here. Absolutely, and it sort of uh, set the tone for what not, what Eric Bischoff wanted Nitro to be. I think he did the old pen and paper, de- you know, line down the middle, what's Raw, what's WCW, so what, what's Nitro, uh, Raw's taped, WCW's going to be live, anything could happen, hence Lex Luger walking down the aisle. He's only there for about 30 seconds. And like you said, that classic sound grab from Eric Bischoff. Oh, get the camera off him. Really trying to play up, I guess, the quote-unquote smart marks. Hey, isn't he supposed to be in WWF? Because I believe he just basically let his contract run out, was kind of uh, fobbing, him, fobbing him off, I think, maybe talking to Vince McMahon, saying, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, I'm with you. And then Stinger was talking to Eric Bischoff, saying, oh, you know, he's he's changed. Because uh, apparently Eric Bischoff, not a big fan of Lex Luger um, in his previous WCW days, lowballed him, and Lex Luger took it. And I think they obviously would then renegotiate a, probably a better deal for Lex Luger, but set the tone for Monday Nitro. Anything could happen. And he walked out there and caused a fuss. I guess the rest is history. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that about Lugo because I, I think I was listening to Bischoff on 83 Weeks and um, I think he was asked whether Lugo's um, situation did improve with the company in the years that followed. And I think Bischoff said it was pretty marginal. I don't think he wound up actually taking too much more money from WCW in, in the years that followed. So, you know, fair play to Lugo. He's made the jump. Um, he made an immediate impact there. Um, you know, obviously the money wasn't the determining factor there, um, but it definitely, yeah, he, he left his mark and um, fair play to Sting as well for, uh, for you know, putting the good word in there for his friend and then for Luger to, to take up the challenge. It's um, one, of the, one of the most memorable moments, I think, in this whole Raw v Nitro scenario. And I think Sting and Lex Luger, uh, they actually own a Gold's Gym together. So um, business partners and friends are trying to help each other out there. Um, but I was going to say as well, um, I think it was, uh, I've heard it a few times on uh, Bruce Pritchard's uh, podcast, uh, Something to Wrestle With, uh, with Conrad Thompson as well. I think it was Pat Patterson. I think they all watched it because they were, were preempted and they were pre-recorded or whatever the deal was with the WWF at the time. I think they were actually watching uh, Nitro and I think Pat Patterson was like ah oh, fuck him he is like he, he's their problem now essentially so <laughs> the Lex Express <laughs> didn't get over but uh, for some reason and this I was talking to the guys uh, at the Reliving the War podcast a few days ago and sort of said Lex Luger for the life of him could not get over with the crowd in the WWF but for some reason in WCW, WCW I don't know if it was the southern thing or he was more over in WCW or at least appeared to be I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to stereotype particular wrestling markets, but I'm glad you kind of touched on it there. I don't know. I was going to put it down to the Southern thing. You know, he was mm. definitely, you know, the clear cut. You know, kind of like, you know, he looked like a, you know, a good American guy. You know, he was strong. He had the aesthetic, and I don't know. I think he just was given more opportunity to sort of be himself in a way. And um, you know, fair play. He took the ball with it and uh, and ran. The audience responded accordingly. And I think, uh, sort of not trying to get off track too much here, I think uh, the, the American flag waving um, sort of American tights type of thing, that's, that's how Vince McMahon, at least back then, saw a baby face. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and um, Vince, that was Vince's, uh, you know, bread and butter of sorts, really, wasn't it? I mean, when he had, you know, the Hulk Hogan's coming out to, you know, real American and, uh, you know, you'd always kind of play up your... Uh, you know, foreigners as the heels by and large, you know, and uh, we saw that with the Sheik, etc. So, you know, the Lex Luger of the WWF was just continuing that line of what Vince thought would appeal. And it was a very simplistic, very basic way to sell your baby faces and, and you know, and your heels. And we lost a bit of that, I think, when, when we saw uh, the Monday Night Wars start up. But of course, again, you know, it did return a little bit later on. We saw the John Cena's versus the Rusev's in, in WWE. So like everything in wrestling, I think Jim Cornette said it best, you know, everything's kind of cyclical. I think it was like a seven or so year cycle before you can repeat things again. So um, it just goes to show you the more things change, others stay the same. I don't know how much we would have put uh, merit in this, but it was it was in a shoot interview quite some time ago with Vader. Now, Vader at this time, I believe, was still on the contract with WCW or was still affiliated with them in some capacity. And he said in a shoot interview that if Luger hadn't jumped ship, it would have been Vader who either would have run down and, I guess, uh, caused a DQ, whether on Sting or Flair at the time. So it could have been a very different-looking Monday Nitro and I guess, uh, I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a sliding door scenario. Vader in for Luger, Luger, Luger in for Vader. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, to be honest with you, I maybe it's because I've seen the way that it plays out. I was entirely happy with the Luger scenario, definitely a lot happier than uh, probably the front office of the World Wrestling Federation was. But, you know, <laughs> I'm happy to leave the, the history the way that it is. Vader, I thoroughly enjoy, but uh, I thought the uh, the Luger impact was, was fantastic and probably exactly what they needed on this Nitro. And it's actually funny. Uh, there was actually, I think, three debuts or three uh, re-debuts, I guess you could say. Now, obviously, Luger being the one that basically took uh, took the cake and all the, uh, I guess, coverage for wrestling fans. But we also have, um, besides Double uh, um, A, Arn Anderson coming in and causing a DQ with the Sting and Flair match here, we also had uh, Scott Norton, Flash Norton from uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling, I believe, at the time, uh, come down to the ring and start uh, causing a scene, which then, in turn, causes the Macho Man Randy Savage to come out and basically tee up a match for the following week. But so we have another debut of, uh, of a wrestler who's an established wrestler to wrestling fans, but maybe not to the Western audience. But we did see a Mike Rotundo VK Wall Street promo as well. Uh, Mike Rotundo uh, had been WCW previously to this, but now VK Wall Street very much playing on the uh, the Money Incorporated, uh, Ted DiBiase, Million Dollar Man, IRS type of gimmick. But I mean, if you compare those three, you have Luger, Norton and VK Wall Street, it really does kind of date, um, I guess, the product, how 1995 that was, and I guess where the pro- where the product was going. Because, I mean, it's less than a year than we're doing the NWO invasion angle. And I think VK Wall Street, unfortunately, just probably wrong time, wrong place, uh, I guess, gimmick-wise. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously he was, uh, there was a bit of a send-up here of the IRS days um, from the WWF, but... These uh, these characters, these gimmicks were, you know, as you say, very much set in that time period, 1994, 95, 90, early 96-ish, you know, there was still a little bit of little bit of silly gimmicking going on here. I actually have to say, I feel really quite bad uh, for Rotunda here. You know, he's kind of, I feel like when I talk to wrestling fans about this episode or about the early days of Nitro generally, um, everyone remembers the Luger debut. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to a certain extent, you know, Norton and, and, and Wall Street do get overlooked a little bit, which is kind of sad because I feel like they're talents in themselves. But, you know, that's the price you pay, I guess, when you have Alex Luger turning up before you on a show like this. Absolutely. And it was a great promo from uh, Mike Rotundo, VK Wall Street. Uh, here it is here. You know, in the past, people have talked and talked and talked about the new generation. But in Mr. Wall Street's estimation, the new generation is nothing more than the few generation. And that is why I'm here in WCW. Because it is about power. It is about money. And right here where the greatest wrestlers in the world are, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Sting, Vader, now you've added to the list Mr. Wall Street. (laughs) Oh, and I'm sure that the IRS is going to be watching me real close. But that's fine, because as you go down the road in the WCW, people are going to know for sure that Michael Wall Street is a real player. Great promo, but again, I think just where wrestling was going at the time, like I was kind of touching on before, it was kind of just an old type of uh, done type of gimmick or type of wrestling, if that makes sense. Uh, obviously, hindsight being twenty twenty, if you knew where wrestling was going, obviously you'd be fully prepared, but you are correct. Lex Luger uh, basically overshadowing uh, Scott Norton and uh, especially uh, VK Wall Street there, but I 
do have to mention, uh, we did miss a Sabu promo, which was basically just, uh, I think, a 30-second <laughs> package of Sabu. And I believe he takes on Alex Wright the following week in a, and he gets disqualified for uh, trying to put him through a table or something along those lines. How different would WCW be if Sabu stayed on long-term for WCW? I think it was only a few shows, if that. I mean, you could do a whole show on Sabu uh, not being bloody in WCW or being in WCW or the contract with ECW, whatever it was. But how crazy is this? Sabu, WCW. Yeah, it feels it feels strange, doesn't it? And because we, I think, in the post, you know, WCW ECW era, the images and the documentaries received released by WWE, Sabu is so closely tied with the ECW brand, and you know, with the independent circuit, you know, that he's that he's competed on, and you see him doing all the hardcore deathmatch style, you know, events. But to see Sabu in WCW is very strange. It's um. It's, it's, it's hard to kind of describe. Um, look, it was, it was interesting to see. I, I do like how, you know, it's a preview package hyping his debut the next week. I think before this, you know, we saw, uh, just to bring it back a little bit, Randy Savage coming out and saying that he wanted to fight with Norton and we'd have mm. to wait till next week to see that all go. There was a nice trend happening here on Nitro of really, you know, hyping the next week to try and get everyone to tune in for the next week. This promo package, though, I have to say for Sabu, what is with this trailing video effect that they've got going on there? Like uh, the post-production is so 1995, you know what I mean? I sort of felt like I sort of felt like I was having some sort of like, you know, visual attack on my eyeballs. It was incredible. But, you know, it's fitting for the time. Sabu in WCW looked unusual in my book. I'm glad that he was there. It was interesting to see. But um, you know what? I definitely see him as more of the, uh, the ECW fit. And I think that's what he'll be remembered for. And I think uh, you sort of uh, touched on it there with the uh, video quality. That's one thing I think for most of the WCW Nitro era with the Monday Night Wars, even just WCW as a whole, their video packages left a little bit to be desired. Some of it, it did get better. I think when we come into 96, they did get a whole of a lot better, but it was really hard for them to compete with WWF, uh, especially come 97, 98. Which is kind of funny, isn't it? Because you do look at WCW as a product and, you know, you're, you're looking at, at, uh, at Ted Turner and the empire that he had amassed, you know what I mean? You had CNN under his umbrella, you know, you'd think the, the post-production facilities would uh, possibly give WCW the edge here. But no, I've always thought that uh, the World Wrestling Federation's uh, production uh, from video to the entrance themes was always just that notch above ever so slightly. I'm sorry, Jimmy Hart. Um, you, know, you do have some great stuff, but I would always give the edge to the WWF. And um, I think I mean, I completely agree with you in that sense. Um, WCW did try to compete, but um, it was never quite there. And I, I've always enjoyed watching uh, Monday Night Raw's, uh, you know, uh, Titan Trons and the Titan Tron entrance videos. I, in fact, I used to go back and just try and watch them as much as I could wherever I could find them because the production quality was so high. Uh, unfortunately, you just never quite saw that with the promos or the video packages with WCW. And uh, you touched on Jimmy Hart there. Get ready for this. Quickly skimming over uh, me and Gene giving away a Harley Davidson to the very likely Mike Hill. Um, World Heavyweight Championship title match. We've got the immortal Hulk Hogan with his manager, in real life and uh, on screen, Jimmy Hart there. I used to love his jackets uh, that would always have Hulk Hogan or, you know, whoever he was representing at the time. Uh, probably not so much when he was managing people from the Dungeon of Doom. That was definitely the end of the line for uh, old mate Jimmy. But Big Bubba, former big boss man of the WWF, uh, Steve Trailer or Terry Taylor? I'm getting my Terry's or my Taylor's. R Ray. Ray. I think it's Ray. Ray. 
Yeah, Ray Trailer. Yeah, Big Bubba taking on Hulk Hogan. Um, obviously, they had the big classic. I think it was a Saturday Saturday night main event uh, back in WWF in the day in the blue steel cage with the, uh, the suplex off the top of the cage. And I think this was very... This, this is me projecting a little bit, but uh, Hulk Hogan going back to things that he knew or things that worked in the WWF and retrying it, I guess, again in WCW. And I guess probably he trusted uh, Big Bubba, Ray Trailer here, and hence why some people on people are like, oh, that's a really odd main event to have. But I guess if you kind of look inside the likes of Hulk Hogan and inside the business side of it, I guess that makes sense. Did you think the same? Yeah, yeah, look, absolutely I did. And look, I've, I've always considered Ray Trailer, Big Bubba, you know, boss man to be um, really uh, underappreciated in many ways mm. um, for his contribution to wrestling, you know. I've always seen him as being a bit of a workhorse, you know. I always know what I'm going to get from him when I watch one of his matches, um, you know, whether he was playing the correctionals officer or whether he was a corporate <laughs> stooge in the corporation for McMahon or whether he was kind of doing this Big Bubba gimmick here, you know. I, I always thought he was a safe pair of hands. And with someone like Hogan, who obviously brings a, a certain level of, uh, I don't want to say baggage, but, you know, he, he has certain requirements around how he performs and who he works with. And I thought Bubba was, was the right man for the job here. I find it interesting, though, with this match, going back and watching it, you know, Hogan, this was around the time when Hogan was really not clicking quite as much with the audience as he used to be, you know. And I think people were, like I said earlier, um, getting a little bit tired with, the, the baby face, you know, all-American, you know, kind of gimmick that Hogan was sort mm. of wearing thin here. And I noticed during the match, Hogan sort of does sort of carry himself a little bit like a heel at times, you know. Yeah. Jimmy Hart's coming in and distracting and he's doing some of those quintessentially heel manager kind of tactics and, and Hogan goes along with it. And I think we do see in this match... It's a really great indicator of what was to come with Hogan and ultimately with the turn uh, with the Outsiders, which was going to come a little bit later on. Um, but this was really a great setup for uh, what Hulk Hogan was going to be, and I think Big Bubba was the right person to see him through it. And if you uh, look uh, closely, there's two young kids uh, in black T-shirts at the in the front row sitting down, and they've actually got signs, both of them. One sign says, Hogan sucks, and another one says, Hogan is a wimp. So I guess you, you correct there. Uh, the red and yellow, all-American, let me tell you something, brother, was, was wearing thin on this generation that was going to be the prime generation for the Attitude Era, Was did run thin. And you are correct, more so. I mean, I feel Hogan in a lot of his matches, even in WWF, kind of had little slightly heel-like tendencies, like the binding on the forehead or the sometimes the rake of the eyes, but somehow got away with it, especially early on. But, yeah, even, it did seem to be played into more so. I just found the kids with the two signs hilarious and it's so funny. Basically, as soon as he turns heel, he kind of becomes a baby face by proxy. It's incredibly foreshadowing. And look, like that sign, those signs have absolutely nothing on the Kane Deweys of the ECW world. But, geez, you know what I mean? Like that really was an indicator of what was to come for Hulk Hogan. And, um, you know, fair play to the kids. They, they clearly were ahead of their time. So um, they knew what was up. I wonder, I wonder where they are in the world. I, I sometimes think about this. I see fans in the front row with a particularly eye-grabbing sign. And I think to myself, I wonder if they're still watching today. I guess we'll never know. And obviously watching this in a uh, COVID time... Uh and this was obviously, of course, pre-COVID. Um, but it's, I found that the, the crowds in the 90s, even if you watch, you know, WWF uh, or WCW on their uh, their shows, people wanted to be on TV or people wanted to have signs. And I kind of feel crowds now, I guess, you know, like I said pre-COVID, don't seem to be the same. Obviously, I don't, uh, there's, a, there's a viewing issue with people blocking people with signs and that, but... 
I mean, I know there's always a change in audiences, but the, there were different audiences back then. They really were, and they were. They, it was a fan base that wanted to be engaging and wanted to be seen. You know, I, I look at. Uh, I was actually watching an episode of, of Rora's War from early uh, 1999. I think it was a couple of weeks back, and it was at the Toronto Sky Dome. It was the the host the venue for our two WrestleManias, I believe. And it is absolutely jam packed, and the number of signs in that crowd is absolutely insane. And I look at um, you know at programming, even from you know maybe around two thousand and six or seven onwards, and you just don't see as many signs, which maybe is a reflection on how engaged the audience is or how comfortable they feel getting engaged. You know, we've we've heard stories, we've all heard stories about fan signs that might be a little bit provocative in the PG era being confiscated mm. and whatnot. So um, I guess if that's the kind of approach of, you know, uh, WWE, then, um, you know, I can understand why fans maybe just go and watch and clap and that's about it. But uh, this was a special time and uh, that's reflected by the number of people being creative and bringing their own messages to, to, to live events, house shows, you know, no, no chance of being on TV. I used to see so many signs from mm. photos of live events and whatnot. And, uh, you know, it was just a special time. I think the audience uh, interaction reflects that. And a lot of smart fans knowing where, like, the hard cam was. Like, I know if, uh, I was watching a uh, Nitro from a few years ago, a few years ago, uh, maybe a decade ago, back in 98, I think it was, and Hulk Hogan was kind of doing his pose as, um, you know, the heel NWO leader. And there was a guy who was essentially right next to Hogan, but he was far enough in the crowd um, to be on hard cam where he was basically uh, copying what Hogan was doing. And it was just great. You just don't see things like that anymore. And like, I guess I don't know if it's because in this generation that we live in, it's all about, you know, getting it on our iPhone and posting it on Twitter or Facebook as opposed to, I guess, living in the moment. Here I am. I'm sounding like a boomer uh, dissing out my own uh, generation. (laughs) (laughs) No, look, I think it's entirely fine, to be honest with you. I I miss the creativity, you know. And I think there um, there were a few signs that just had nothing to do with wrestling. They were Mm. incredibly entertaining. I think I was watching an episode of Nitro once. And there was a sign, a bloke had a, had a sign that said, I installed my own water faucet. I mean, why do we need to know that? Who cares? But I tell you what, I laugh and I still think about it to this day. So, you know, 20, 20 odd years on, whatever it has been now, I mean, geez, the fact that I still think about that is just a testament to how entertaining these signs actually were. So we get our regular uh, Hulk Hogan uh, win He retains the World Heavyweight Championship. He hulks up, big boot, leg drop, one, two, three, see you later. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, some say. Um, but then obviously the classic heel stable, the Dungeon of Doom, come, uh, hit, they hit the ring um, and I have to laugh here. Obviously Ke- Kevin Sullivan, uh, maybe the Dungeon of Doom, probably not the best thing that he ever did, but I mean if you go back to his early days, a great performer, psychology, and if you think about it, quite a small wrestler, but he did invoke fear uh, for such a small guy, um, Kevin Sullivan. Uh, but obviously, Dungeon of Doom, Kevin Sullivan, uh, my favourite, the Zodiac, uh, which I like to call, um, oh. I guess it would be the wish version of Sting, um, who just says, <laughs> what? And obviously, that was, of course, uh, Hulk Hogan's best friend being uh, Brutus the Barber. Um, I think Kamala was there. We had uh, John Tenter, who I believe was uh, not Earthquake, uh, the Shark, I think it was. But obviously, they, oh, they, they come down to the ring. They start pummeling on Hulk Hogan. And Lex Luger returns and, I guess, kind of uh, helps uh, get rid of the Dungeon of Doom. They do the classic back-to-back. And then Lex Luger and Hulk Hogan are all up in each other's faces we uh, cut to a commercial and we've got uh, our master of ceremony, so to speak, Mean Gene in between them. 
and uh, Lex Luger and Hulk Hogan are dissing each other. I do have to say my favourite line from what Lex Luger said uh, is, I'm sick and tired of playing around with kids. I want to I want to play with the big boys. I want to take on the big boys, and that's why I'm challenging you. Can you not hear Eric Bischoff feeding him that line before the show goes on air? <laughs> I can see it straight from Easy E's notebook. He would have sat there the night before, and how am I going to turn the screws to Vincent Kennedy? Oh, that's right. Here's what we're going to do. I'm not playing around with kids anymore. That's the way you did it. You know what, though? The fact we are talking about it now, 25 years on, says it made its mark. And you know what? I actually have, I'm looking at my notes in front of me right now, and that's the one quote that I had from that little confrontation there written down in front of me in, in, in pen. So, you know, I'm not, not here, not playing around with the kids anymore. So, um, you know, again, it all feeds into the messaging that um, Eric Bischoff and Nitro wanted for this first episode. You know, uh, Nitro is where the big boys play. It all comes together nicely. And we spoke earlier about how Macho Man and Scott Norton had basically been signed uh, for the following show, as is this match uh, for the World Heavyweight Championship, Lex Luger v Hulk Hogan. And a lot of wrestling purists would be like, whoa, why would you uh, be putting this on free-to-air TV when you could, you know, work your way to a pay-per-view for this? And we kind of said off-air, well, the main thing is because WCW was part of the, te- uh, the Turner Network, which was a television company. It was all about ratings and getting eyeballs on TV. Well, that's exactly right. And I think for WCW and for Ted Turner, the pay-per-view ratings weren't quite as important as it was the overall audience that was tuning in to cable television, obviously, being, you know, uh, TNT being a a Turner product. um, You know, there was more of a focus there. I don't think that was the same for Vince McMahon with his approach to the USA Network and with WWE pay-per-view buy rates. Um, It makes sense. I do have to say, though, long term, this probably wasn't the right strategy for Eric Bischoff and WCW. I mean, we all remember Goldberg winning the title on on Nitro Mm. and just how devastating that probably was uh, when you think of what that could have done on pay-per-view, you know, Um, that that could have been a fantastic pay-per-view marquee match. So long term, um, perhaps not the right strategy, but definitely during those formulative uh, months and maybe year or so of Nitro, it made a lot of sense to offer that um, that talent and that that kind of marquee offering uh, on on cable television, and uh, it did work during those early stages. That's for sure. I know WWF was uh, uh, preempted by the US Open. I'm not sure if they had had a show on the Saturday or the Tuesday or whatever it was, but I guess it's hard to sort of compare when Nitro was unopposed and basically had the market all to itself there, but. 95 for WWF was not a great time. I think they'll still do a lot of sort of childish kind of gimmicks that would eventually change because of uh, WCW and the uh, NWO. But on paper, I mean, you know, sure, there was some, you know, uh, bogus Hogan stuff with the Pastor Mania and the the tried and true tired uh, red and yellow Hulk character at the time. But I think Lex Luger... Scott Norton, Macho Man, you're definitely enticed to watch again next week. And I think uh, as good as the Bret Hart's and the Shawn Michaels of the WWF were, I mean, no one could touch them in regards to putting a match together and putting on a performance. I think when you had the big names of the Ric Flair's, Sting's, now Luger, and that would eventually be the Outsiders, they had the big names. And I think that's where they did uh, obviously become so dominant in 96 you're absolutely correct. And whereas wrestling audiences these days, and maybe it's because we're both a little bit older, you know, we, we appreciate the technical aspect of, of, a, of a solid wrestling match. But back then, you know, when we were a bit younger and when, you know, people were children, we wanted to see those larger than life characters to a certain extent. And for the early days of WCW, they did have 
those people, they had the bright, you know, they had the Ric Flair robes and Sting was in his bright colours, you know, and Hogan was still coming out in his red and yellow. Um, but obviously as everyone got older, that changed in the attitude and uh, – <laughs> attitude, there you go, appropriate word, um, changed the game a little bit, you know. But I guess at that time, yeah, you know, as, as the crowds are a little bit younger, we wanted to see a few of those those big-name characters that were, you know, big muscular wrestlers. But, um, yeah, as time went on, as we all got a bit older and we wanted something a little bit more diverse and a little bit more cutting edge, um, you can see where the appreciation for the art of wrestling and, as we say, you know, the Lucha Libre style, the cruiserweights that came into WCW became a yeah. bigger focus we saw those big baby faces really turning into powerhouse heels. And also, funny enough, bit of a sidebar before we do wrap up, uh, same date, uh, September 4, 2000. Uh, this is very much uh, on the downward trajectory, uh, that's the correct word, uh, of WCW. This was under the Vince Russo uh, regime, which another person who I think at times gets some unfair flack, but September 4, 2000, Monday Nitro, the last ever war games uh, that would ever happen on WCW television or TNT, uh, the Turner Network. Obviously, we've seen that reprised uh, with NXT with their war games. Uh, Funny, at uh, the same date is the first Nitro and... uh, in, 2000, oh, in 1995 then, but then moved to 2000, only five years, the last war games that WCW would ever have. Uh, any opinion on the Russo era or the war games that uh, Nitro would become? Yeah, look, I... Um Look, I, I'm not quite as passionate about Vince Russo as Jim Cornetti is, I have to say, but <laughs> look... Yeah. You know, look, it was interesting. I, I have fonder memories of war games um, dating back to years earlier. I try not to think too highly of the Nitro uh, war games period. Um, it's actually funny, you know, I was looking, I had the ratings for Nitro and Raw in front of me right now because I was, I was going through them before we, uh, we jumped on the line. And um, the 3.6 that Nitro drew on the 4th of September 2000 was uh, the highest rating that it had had until its death. No episode that uh, followed beat the 3.6 that Nitro got that night. So clearly audiences um, tuned in, um, but they didn't really come back that number ever again. So would you say a 3.9 or a 3.5? A 3.6 for Nitro that night, yeah. WWE would kill for ratings like that now, wouldn't they? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Raw, Raw that night, Raw that night drew a 4.2. So, you, you know, like oh, there's a little bit of a gap there, but not nearly as significant as um, it would be at other times. I mean, uh, for example, just a few weeks later, Raw was drawing a 5.4 and Nitro wasn't even drawing half of that. So, um, you know, there definitely was interest for that 4th of September episode. But, yeah, like I say, um, clearly not enough to retain and I could be, I could get on my baby boomer uh, bandwagon and say, oh, because kids have phones now and you can record things. There's no need for must-see TV, but uh, I'll leave that for another day. But uh, that does wrap us up for the debut episode, the 25th. I don't think I even mentioned that. The 25th anniversary of uh, WCW Monday Nitro. Adam, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, I like to give everyone a plug uh, at the end of the show. What can we plug? What are you do? What are you doing around the town as a uh, '90s wrestling enthusiast and a journo? What's uh, What's uh, in the upcoming uh, weeks for you? Oh, look, nothing, nothing too externally focused at the moment. I'm, I'm working in corporate communications, so I'm working for AMP, the wealth manager. So just, um, just doing a, a few videos on on that sort of thing there. So um, just jump on my Twitter if you um, if you like. Uh, talking about wrestling um, or the media landscape more generally. Um, 
give me a follow. It's at Adam Masters, Masters with an R, M-A-R-S-T-E-R-S. Um, give me a follow. I'll give you a follow back. And if you like wrestling, um, you know, even if you don't, I don't know why you're listening if you don't, but so be it. Um, <laughs> give me a follow. Send me a tweet. Um, and look, I'd love to talk wrestling. Same way I love talking wrestling with you, mate, because, um, you know, it's, it's a fantastic pastime. It's the greatest sport on earth in my mind. So, um, yeah, the more conversations and reminiscing we can do, the better I say. Absolutely. Adam Masters, thank you so much. If it means anything, he does have that blue tick on his Twitter, which means uh, he's legit, uh, <laughs> as opposed to me when for a blue tick. It's all about the blue tick now, isn't it, on Instagram and Twitter. You ain't somebody until you got that blue tick, apparently, Adam. I've, I feel I feel like I'm over now. I feel like I, I've made it, you know. Um, but I'll just let anyone. I'll do anything for a cheap pop. So yeah, you know, hey, give me a follow. Happy days. <laughs> Until next time, we'd love to have you back on the show in the not too distant future. But uh, we've been chatting about WCW Monday Nitro, the debut episode, September 4, 1995. Uh, if you want to reminisce, warm it up on the WWE Network. Not trying to shill for them, but. Uh, I think we have to pay them 13 bucks a month or 12 bucks a month uh, if you're in Australia here. But uh, well worth it. And uh, we'll have to find another WCW or WWF Attitude Era uh, thing to chew the fat about and uh, reminisce about, Adam. It'd be an absolute pleasure. And uh, if not, I'll see you back here for the 50th anniversary of the uh, debut episode of Monday Night Nitro.